0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's mid-September 1901 and Jan Smuts is about to face one of the most challenging moments in his illustrious career. He was only 28 years old at this point. It was to achieve so much in the next few weeks and would forever be remembered as the remarkable soldier who led a tiny group of men into the mouth of the British Empire Lion. His immediate challenge, however, involved the weather rather than the British. In an event which became known in Boer's storytelling as the Big Rain, his commander was caught on high ground and hammered by a biblical deluge that threatened to destroy his force. A few days after crossing into the Cape Colony and being attacked by the Basuto, Smuts survived a second ambush by a British patrol that killed his three scouts as they rode to investigate reports of a large column nearby. That was at the aptly named Purt, or Murderer's Way. Among the dead was Netling, who was a friend of our narrator, Denise Retz, who has warned us how many of the members of the Reich section, the rich section, as they ironically call themselves, were going to die. Ironic, because they were dressed in rags. One of the ten went further describing the band of brothers as the dandy fifth. Anyway, by mid-September, they were riding into more hills, which of course is where moist air rises and it rains more, particularly on the southerly facing mountains of South Africa. We are now travelling on for three days across windy barrens, heading southwest. The weather grew more and more tempestuous as we went, and we suffered severely from the cold, writes Rates. It may be the first month of spring, but it can still snow on the high ground, and Smuts's commander was caught in freezing weather. It rained constantly, sometimes sleeted, and the wind never abated. Both horses and men began to show signs of distress, said Rates. The animals looked thin and gaunt and the men sat on their saddles pinched, shivering and despondent for South Africans are particularly susceptible to the depressing effects of bad weather. The continued lack of any sunshine made them even more dispirited and Rates began to wish he'd never left the Free State. By day we were wet and cold and the nights were evil dreams, Rates mutters in his diary. It was almost impossible to light a fire at night both because of the wet kindling, but also due to fears the British would see their fires. So they spent the hours of darkness huddled together, trying to snatch a moment of sleep on some muddy mountainside or in an equally sodden valley. Soon we were losing horses freely, and not a trek was made without some wretched animals being left behind with tuckered flanks and drooping heads, waiting for the end. And things were not going to get better soon. Smuts was pushing onwards despite the horrible conditions. We had three days of this, writes rides, but our real troubles were only beginning. It was sunset on day four when they crested a rise and caught sight of Jamestown. The sight did not leave them very optimistic, for there was a strong English column to the north of the town and General Smuts ordered the men to keep riding. It grew pitch dark and a driving rain smote straight in our faces The night was so black that it was impossible to see even the man immediately before one, and the cold so bitter that we became stiff and numbed. They were freezing in the saddle, and by now most of the horses needed to be dragged along, so most were marching to conserve what energy the animals had left. Things worsened for rates, for as they crossed a spring, his sandals became stuck in the heavy clay, and they were sucked right off his feet. When he tried pulling them free, they came to pieces and were destroyed. He had to cut bits of his blanket and wrap these around his feet. Worse, the local Africana guide, who was very young, had lost his bearings, so the men had to grope their way through the icy rain for five hours. Eventually, General Smuts ordered a halt, and the men could take no more, and stood huddled together, ankle-deep in mud and water, praying for the sunrise. But the light of the early morning revealed a terrible scene. More than 30 of the horses had died of exposure in the night, and the men were shattered. Their vital animals were dying, and without horses the Boer commander was nothing. It continued raining harder, but suddenly, at midday, the sky cleared and the sun shone. They also caught sight of a farmhouse close by, and noticed that the outbuildings were packed with straw and fuel for a fire. The farm was inhabited by a Boer couple, who quickly lit a large blaze, warming the men, and they had their first hot meal for a week. The housewife at the farm gave me a pair of old-fashioned elastic-sided boots, said rates. He was shoeless and had been for months. His sandals were hardly suitable for the winter, and now he had proper boots. He also found an empty grain bag and proceeded to cut holes for his head and arms, providing for himself a serviceable greatcoat, as he said, or a grain coat. My appearance caused much laughter. But I noticed that during the next few days, whenever we passed the barn, grain bags were in great demand, and soon many of the men were wearing them. The Boers had run out of clothing and were now stripping British prisoners semi-naked and replacing their rags with the British outfits, then sending their prisoners on their way in their underwear. The next day, the 50-strong unit under Louis Vessels returned to the Free State, their job done. They had been sent to help General Smuts into the Cape and now needed to return home. The rest of the commander under General Smuts rode onwards on their now refreshed horses then stopped under the shade of some trees in a pleasant valley. Moments later, a loud banging sound heralded an ambush. There were two British field guns firing at them from a nearby hill and the shells arched overhead, exploding some distance behind the surprised commander. General Smuts ordered a hasty retreat and they rode to a range of low hills to the rear where the Boers dismounted, watching as 600 British soldiers marched in the grass towards their high point. There was an exchange of fire, but Rates and many other Boers did not shoot as they were perilously low on ammunition. However, this exchange made the men realise that their time in the Cape was going to be extremely busy. As you'll hear in a moment, they had no idea just how busy they'd be. It was the second week of September, and this amazing group of men, led by an equally exceptional general, were going to cause a great deal of trouble in the Cape. They were close to Dortrecht the next day, now moving around 30 miles or 50 kilometers, much faster than during their ordeal in the big rain. However, it began to rain once more that night, but they had food and were in good spirits. They had made it to the Storenberg region of what is now known as the Eastern Cape, and close to important harbours of Port Elizabeth and East London. It was also close to the symbolic administrative centre known as Grahamstown, and their appearance so far south caused a frenzy of fear to grip the English settlers in this region. Some of the men slaughtered a few sheep they saw nearby, and the rest sat down to prepare for their first meal in 24 hours when General Smuts shouted, Opsal! or Saddle Up! There was a large column of English soldiers rushing towards them from a nearby hill. The commander sprang into action and galloped off towards the Stoddumbergh. Climbing along an empty road through to the first summit of the pass. Rates and his Rake section friends were the nominated scouts of the commander, and Smuts ordered them forward to take a look at what they could see. The summit was a grassy tableland about three miles wide, sloping gently to where the southern face of the mountain fell, abruptly down to the plains below. When the commander had caught up, General Smuts surveyed the scene. They were now able to look down on the achingly beautiful part of South Africa called the Karoo, which is semi-desert but full of hidden waterholes and little streams. Henry Rittenberg and Denise Rates were singled out by General Smuts, who once again needed to know how clear the route was to the south. These two rode out to the edge of the plateau and looked down. What they saw was a railway line and a number of trains, disgorging troops and horses in rapid succession. The British were coming for General Smuts. Rates and Rittenberg were not sure of the number and decided to ride closer to count the column and check for special weapons like the dreaded Maxim machine gun and the pom-pom automatic cannon. We had not gone half a mile when some two dozen troopers rode at us from behind a roll in the ground firing from the saddle as they came. The two scouts were in mortal danger. We whipped around and galloped away but had not the balance of the wreck section come to our aid we should have been shot or captured for there was no cover in which to make a stand. Their horses were also in no fit shape to gallop anywhere. The rake section opened fire on the British, who turned around and made their escape down the hill. But now the English were certain that General Smuts was close, and they wanted to catch or kill this important leader. As we've heard in this series, the weather then played its part once more. A gale-force wind began to blow, and the Boers were forced to stand with their backs to the storm to escape the flying grit that stung like buckshot, said Reitz. 300 English troops appeared, but then appeared shocked by the Boers and ran off down the hill, firing as they went. That is where General Coors de la Rey's nephew suddenly threw up his arms and dropped dead. An English bullet had hit him straight between the eyes. General Smuts was now aware, as he stood nearby with Commandant van Deventer and Bouver, that the English were beginning to encircle the Boer commander as they waited on the plateau. This is where Smuts used his military prowess and guerrilla training to its fullest. The commander leapt on their horses and Smuts led them back and forth all afternoon in the teeth of the roaring gale, avoiding one machine gun after another and using dead ground to hide his movements where he could. The British at the same time were not sure exactly where to attack because Smuts was using the concept of initiative to confuse the English officers. One messenger would arrive after another with contradicting information and there was no chance to mount a concerted attack on a specific point. But most Boers now had a single round or no bullets left at all. Their horses were exhausted and they had been riding and running for more than 40 hours non-stop. The noose around us had tightened slowly until by dusk we were at bay around a small farmhouse and kraal, lying in a hollow where our speedy capture seemed certain. But as you've heard through this podcast series, Denise raids appear to be like a cat with nine lives. He was not yet 21, but was a remarkable soldier, and the next incident highlighted this fact. The English troops could see the Boers now, and no doubt believed they were about to make a last stand. But it was so close to dusk, they decided to hold off their attack until the morning. This, of course, was what their colleagues in the Transvaal and the Free State knew was a mistake. Their more experienced officers would move during the night and attack the Boers in the early morning, pretty much a tactic that the Boers had been using throughout the war. Instead, they stopped and ready to move the next morning. General Smuts was still in real trouble until a hunchbacked cripple, as Rates calls him, shuffled up out of the house. He said he'll lead the Boers through the English troops to the edge of the tableland. He knew the English would not be watching an area of extremely boggy soil, and that was precisely where the commander would go. Around half a dozen of the Boers had been injured by the British bullets and were left behind, but in a few minutes the others were silently filing off into the darkness, led by the hunchback on a horse at their head. Two miles of twisted turning followed, in some cases close enough to hear the English talking and the champing of their horses at their bits, but three hours later they were on the edge of the escarpment. From here the mountainside fell sharply away into black depths below. How steeply we could not tell, but our guide warned us that it was very steep indeed. Then the man dropped from his horse and plodded off into the night on his crutches, never to be seen again by General Smuts. He was a Cape Afrikaner who would be executed for helping the Boers if the English ever found out, yet he'd risked his life and property on their behalf. Now to descend. It was a vertical attempt, probably equal to Christian de Wet's crazy climb in the Macalisburg a year before, and also probably better that the Boers could not see just how dangerous it was. I doubt whether we could have accomplished it by day, but horses are more tractable and sure footed in the dark. So we pulled them over the edge and went slithering down. At times, whole batches of boers came glissading past, knocking others off their feet as they slid, but the surface was covered with thick grass and none were badly hurt. It was now sixty hours since sleep. The men were sick with exhaustion, but smuts forced them on over a road and then they spotted a railway line that had detrained the column now encamped hundreds of feet above them on the plateau. As they prepared to cross this railway line, a train could be heard approaching in the dead of night. Some of the men wanted to derail the engine, but General Smuts said no. They were in no condition to fight, and furthermore, there could be civilians on the train who would be killed. Here an amazing moment took place, for on board the train, which was following a branch from the Indwe coal mine, was the famous General French, the commander of British cavalry, and the man tasked with hunting General Smuts. So we stood aside, said rates catching a glimpse of officers and the others seated in the dining car, smoking and taking wine, all unaware of the men looking at them from the darkness. The officers included General French. Although neither Smuts nor any of the Boers recognized him, the moment was too fleeting. Later, General French told General Smuts that he had been hurrying on board the train along with his staff to be part of the English operation to capture Smuts who was presumed to be still hiding in the Boer farmhouse on the top of the plateau. We missed a great opportunity, said General French later. It was just the start of what was going to be an extremely active period for Reitz and his general as the commando moved forward in the dark. What happened next, though, is for next week. I need to explain what else was going on around South Africa at this point. The third week of September 1901. Last week, we heard how General Louis Boote was gearing up to invade Natal and gathering a large commando of 1,000 men at Ermelo. Reports and rumours of the imminent attack on Natal were circulating throughout South Africa, so Louis Boote was in for a hot welcome when he crossed the border into Natal. As Boote rode, five columns of British numbering more than 10,000 men were sent to intercept him. But the British were slow. They kept missing Boote as he changed direction to throw these columns off his scent. And, as with Smuts, Boerter's main problem at first was the weather. It rained incessantly and sapped both the men and horses' strength as they rode towards Retief in northern Natal. Still, he managed to reach the neighbourhood of Freyheit by 17th of September 1901, and now his numbers had swelled to over 2,000 men, including a specialist commando waiting to lead him into a major attack planned on the town of Dundee. It was a coal mining area and had been the scene of bitter fighting in the conventional war two years before. An equally bitter fight was about to ensue. Boerter's guides were somewhat uncertain about the exact direction to take and their route was dotted with British troops and units. A few miles out of Dundee, Boerter had sent a large scouting party of a few dozen men to determine the lie of the land and a possible course for his commander to take. It just so happened that a column of mounted infantry under the command of Captain H. de la P. Goff of the Lancers was making its way out of Dundee at precisely that moment. They chanced on the Boer scouts grazing their horses at the mouth of the Blood River Port. This was one of the most important historical sites for the Boers close to where they had defeated the Isizulu in a major clash in 1838 that became known as the Battle of Blood River. Captain Goff was not one to look a gift Boer horse in the mouth, so spurred his 300 men into a full-blooded charge towards the Boer scouts. This happens to be the very first example in this war of the British charging on horses towards their foe while firing their rifles from the saddle. Normal cavalry would be employed as a flanking move or to hunt down fleeing soldiers using lances and swords to chop up their cowering victims after they were flushed out by artillery and infantry. Not this time, the 300 galloped across the plain towards the Boers, firing and yelling as they went, in a mile-long tilt towards the scouts. As they raced forward, success appeared certain, until, out of the corner of Captain Goff's eye, he caught sight of a terrifying vision. From a gorge on their left, a force of over 500 Boers thundered out across Gough's front and proceeded to wheel about, then attack him from the opposite flank, dismounting before rolling up the 300-strong mounted infantry. In ten minutes, the Boers killed, wounded or captured 285 English soldiers and seized their two guns. Goff's impetuosity and failure to scout the situation had been turned into a disaster by the unlucky fact that Boota's main force had been about to join their advance guard. In many ways, this moment symbolised the very change that had taken place in this war. The difference between this clash and the momentous conventional combat at the Battle of Talana near Dundee almost exactly two years before is important to note. The British had become complacent in recent months compared to those dreadful days in the early part of the Anglo-Boer War where they had been shredded as they marched towards Boer entrenchments. This new attack caused profound alarm and brought back those terrible memories when Penn Simons lay dying and Yule trudged desperately to Ladysmith, which was then besieged and cut off from the Jugela. It was also a very different Boer commander that rode away exultantly. Things were different for them too. The winter had drained these men. The horses were not the healthy, fast and powerful beasts of two years ago. Furthermore, the rains were still falling and then together a short but extremely powerful river was in full flood and this was going to make General Borta's life very difficult indeed. So we must halt now, haul out the oilskins, and pull our hats down to fight off the rain. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and post a review if you have the time. You can also send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye.